Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. everyone, and welcome back to New Books and Biography, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Mark Klobis, your host for the channel. Today I'm speaking with Nandini Patwardhan, author of the book Radical Spirits, India's First Woman Doctor and Her American Champions. Nandini, welcome to the New Books Network. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. Well, it's great having you on our show. I was wondering if you could start us off by telling our listeners something about yourself. Sure. Um... Um, I'm originally from India, and I moved to the United States in the early 1980s. So I have lived almost all of my adult life here in the U.S. I have a graduate degree in mathematics, and my entire career was as a software developer. I'm now retired. Um, I had known the story that my book tells as a girl growing up in India, But I stumbled across some new information about 10 years ago, which set me down this path of uncovering as much of the story as I could. What led you to write a story about her life? So uh, I had uh, heard, like I said, I had heard the story of Joshi uh, when I was growing up, but I knew a very small a very abridged version of it. The information that I stumbled across online indicated that she actually came to the United States to obtain a medical education. I didn't know that. The other amazing tidbit that I found was that her ashes are buried in a family cemetery in Poughkeepsie, New York. This uh, was Unusual because Hindus cremate the dead and then distribute the ashes in a body of water. So I knew that there must have been a very special bond between Anandi Joshi and the family in whose plot her ashes were buried. And I wanted to find out more about this family. By this time, um, I had lived in the United States for several decades and I had formed very close relationships with many American friends, neighbors, co-workers. And I just wanted to know if Anandi Joshi had had similar experiences in a very different America. Mm-hmm. It really was fascinating the way that you talk not just about uh, Joshi's life, but you talk as well about the America that she encountered and how it was uh, in for a reader in the early 21st century, in so many ways, a very different America. It was, it was, it was America that what, you know, had a, a very, you know, you, you talk a great deal about uh, religion, the role of, of, of missionary activities and how it wasn't just a matter of a, just that foreign transplant that, that we're talking about, but you're also talking about having to recapture that to understand how she fit in, not just with America, but with the America of the 1870s and 1880s. Yes, that's right. Um, Actually, 
various aspects of religion play a big part in the book. To begin with, there was the orthodoxy and conservative beliefs of Hindus in 1870s and 1880s India. In that time and in that place, it was religion that dictated that educating girls and women was sinful. It was religion which powered culture and tradition, which dictated that women should not be treated by male doctors. It was religion that dictated that crossing the seas, living among non-Indians, non-Hindus, traveling without a husband, pursuing an education were all, quote, sinful activities. So a part of the book dwells on how Anandi Joshi and her husband Gopal navigated these very strong, uh, this very strong opposition to their plans. Another aspect of religion within India is that there was a great deal of missionary activity. Missionaries, Catholic missionaries, as well as Protestant missionaries of every denomination were coming to, the, to India in the hope of converting as many people as possible to their religion. Um, and in that pursuit, they were also trying to do good. They were trying to establish schools for girls. In fact, I, am, I went to a school that was founded by missionaries from Scotland. It is one of the first girls' schools in the city of Mumbai. And the school operates even today, over 150 years later. So a part of the book uh, deals with missionary activity in India but also the missionary impulse here in the United States, which funded and financed missionary activity in India and elsewhere in the world. Another way I, I think of your book is, uh, after you know, having read it, is the notion of it's the story of how a person overcame all these hurdles. And people always overcome hurdles in, in their lives in so many ways. But the hurdles that, that she overcame, you've already mentioned uh, a lot of them in terms of religion, in terms of culture. But you're also talking about geography. You're talking about uh, you know economics. And yet – and. So what you see in her story is a person who not only overcame all these hurdles, but was the first person ever to do it. So she wasn't just overcoming hurdles. She was blazing this trail. Yes, that's right. Um, so, for example, when news got out in the city of Calcutta, which at that time was the capital of British India, that uh, she was planning to travel to the United States, there was a great deal of opposition and so her husband decided that he should give a speech, a public speech, explaining why it was necessary for her to go. And at some point when the duo were having discussions about what he should say, she suggested that instead of him, she should be the person to give that speech. Now, what is amazing about this is that this is a time when women did not even venture alone outside the home. Most women did not speak English. Most women did not speak up uh, within their families, let alone outside their families, in the public square. And at a time like this, 
she stood on stage and gave a speech with in english in fluent english and she also interspersed it with apt quotes from the hindu scriptures so she was really extremely well read and extremely proficient in these very different streams of knowledge english and sanskrit and to elaborate upon that she's doing this before she's even reached the age of 20 that's right she was about 18 when she made this speech yeah before we get to that let, let's go back to uh her family and her early years what was her family upbringing life from where did she come and what were her early experiences about and how they steer her on the path that she took sure that's a very good question she belonged to a quote unquote elite hindu family in the sense that her she came from a brahmin family which is quote unquote the highest caste and that means that education was not unknown in her family except it was given only to males only to the male children and also that meant that they were not hard up they were they had abundant food space all the basic necessities of life but the difference was that she was very active and very rambunctious and her mother worried about how a girl like this would manage once she was married and sent to live with her in-laws and so her mother forced her to enter to uh, attend school the home school that was run for the boys in the family and that's how she got she first got introduced to education but the other interesting part of her life at this time now we are talking about when she was between 5 and 8 years old one day she saw the family priest washing the little holy idols of the gods and she thought to herself that this is not too different from when she played with her dolls because just like her dolls those idols didn't protest when they were washed and scrubbed and when they were dressed and so she went to her father and she said how is this any different they are just like dolls and her father explained to her that the dolls what she was thinking of as dolls were actually in hindu belief were manifestations of different aspects of god's love for humans and her father said to her do you think you can pray without these idols and when she said yes he said in that case you don't need these idols anymore this is so this is a father who is having this very interesting and amazing conversation with his little 6 or 7 year old daughter most other fathers at this time would probably have uh discourage the daughter from asking such questions might have tried to tell her that she was being sinful by questioning the importance of the idols but in his own way her father was a free thinker and i think having grown up with this type of openness and dialogue she became a fearless person it was interesting to see how that she was encouraged in, in in so many ways and how unusual that encouragement was i it was you've been so as you described 
very commonplace for a, a lot of those constraints to be there. I mean, the constraints were natural. She really had to go out of her way and 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 have opportunities created so that she could uh, you know pursue uh, an education and to you know explore what was possible. Yes, that's right. Yes. So you described as well the her husband. Her husband is is a very major figure in terms of the story in both positive and, and not so positive ways. I was wondering if you could tell a bit, tell us a bit about uh, her husband Gopal and his role in uh, her life in India prior uh, in 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 that uh, prior to coming to America. Sure. So Gopal is a very interesting character, as you said. He, I think, of all the people in the story, he's the one who undergoes the most transformation. And in some ways, he's the one who has the hardest time dealing with his wife's success. To begin with, he was he was an iconoclast. He did not believe in women not being educated. He saw how women suffered from lack of access to education, but also from having to move to live with their in-laws at a very young age. And so he decided that he would educate his wife. And in fact, his condition to his future father-in-law was that he would marry his daughter, Anandi, only if the father-in-law would promise not to interfere in his plans to educate his wife. Now, so strong was Gopal's commitment to this that as a young girl, as a girl of 11, 12, 13, Anandi was not always a willing student because she didn't see anybody else of her age being forced to sit in a corner and study. And Gopal was not beyond resorting to physical aggression to make sure that she studied. So, you know, that, that's where the dark side of his personality starts, starts to emerge. I thought that was especially fascinating how you uh, uncover this challenge that she had in terms of navigating his personality, how she had to learn how to, uh, you know, relate to it, how to manage it. And then she had later, as you explained later on in the book, she had to learn how to interpret it and uh, cope with it long distance. That's right. Yes. That comes much later after she came to the United States alone and Gopal was still in India. Because at that point, he became very insecure about his role in her life. He became suspicious. He became demanding. And she had to find a way to manage his temperament, his reactive temperament remotely. So on top of dealing with a new society, a new environment, a new education commitment, cooking for herself, remaining a vegetarian, on top of all that, she also had to worry about keeping her husband happy and quiet mm-hmm. and not angry. And as you explained, that the challenge which she had to learn in India was, in a sense, easier because of the proximity. But when they first get married, she gets married at a very young age, and mm-hmm. she has to figure this out at a time when many people in the West think of it as still very much of a formative period when people yes. are still figuring out things about themselves. Yes, that's right. And that's what Gopal had seen happen to his first wife who died soon after she had her baby. So Anandi was actually his second wife. Mm -hmm. And he had seen his first wife suffer 
and that's what had made him determined that he wouldn't let the same thing happen to his second wife he had also seen part of his transformation took place at a much earlier age he had an older sister and his father used to let his older sister study at home when gopal was being tutored at home by his father and gopal noticed that his sister was actually much brighter than him she learned the her studies more quickly and he became very jealous and he one day in his rage he tore up all her papers but soon she was married and sent to live with her in-laws and that's when he when he in in missing her after she moved away is when he realized how futile was his rivalry because she had lost whatever little power she had in terms of getting educated and she could not any longer benefit herself or her family or her community from her intelligence she, the door had been closed to her and that's what changed his mind about how women were treated in that society there's something we should make clear here which is it's one thing to say that gopal uh wanted his wife to be educated that he encouraged her to get an education but as you explained he goes to extraordinary steps uh when they're living together in india to allow her to get an education what does he do in terms of his own career in terms of choices yeah. that he makes so that and yeah. uh, to what degree are they made specifically so that his wife can get an education yeah so gopal had a job with the british postal service the british had started the postal service maybe 15 or 20 years before this time so maybe in the 1860s and they had established this network all over india and for the first time it had become possible for indians to send mail to any part of the country in a reliable and affordable way so he it was like working for a large corporation that had locations all over this big subcontinental country um but because gopal was so interested in educating his wife he was constantly on the lookout for people who might assist him in educating her and at that time because there were no schools for girls in india his best bet were christian missionaries so for example when he learned that there was a missionary school in the city of kolhapur he requested a transfer to kolhapur so that she might get educated the other thing to remember at this time is that this was very much a british ruled country meaning that everything that worked for the british was paramount which meant that knowledge of english was a must and so he wanted to make sure that his wife knew english and so time and time again he put in for transfers to towns where he was certain he would find a hospitable atmosphere to educate his wife that connection with christian missionaries is absolutely uh important in terms of how anandi comes to america how is it that she that that opportunity first uh, emerges and 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 what role does that christian missionary connection play in it so um anandi and gopal were in like i mentioned in in the city of kolhapur 
and that's where he made the acquaintance of an American missionary named Reverend Joseph Goheen. And like all missionaries, Goheen was on the lookout for a high-profile conversion. And what he meant, what was meant by high profile was a high caste Brahmin person who converts to Christianity, because that would help him to convert many more people. And when he heard from Gopal that Gopal did not believe in idol worship, he felt very hopeful that Gopal would be amenable to a conversion. At the same time, Gopal had an interest in Gohin because of mastery of the English language. And so the two men became friends. Each one had a selfish motive at the back of his mind. And gradually from Gohin, Gopal heard about the United States, which I doubt that up until that point, he had given much thought to, because he lived in a British ordered, British ruled country. So there were a couple of aspects about the United States that made the United States seem like a very attractive proposition to Gopal. One was the knowledge that the the Americans had overthrown British rule a hundred years previously in the 1770s and 80s. The other thing was that they had only recently fought the civil war to eradicate slavery. And from Reverend Goheen, he also heard about the women's movement, such as it was in the 1870s and 80s. And so he became very interested in finding a way to get Anandi to the United States. Go ahead. So that was in Kolhapur. And after that, he moved to Bombay, which is now called Mumbai which was the biggest city, a commercial city, a very comparatively rich city. And once again, he moved there because he had heard that there were many schools for girls that had been founded by missionaries. And in fact, it was during the one year stay in Bombay that Anandi attended a girls school run by missionary women. And there is an interesting Uh, incident that took place at this time, which is that one of her teachers encouraged Anandi to read the Bible. And my sense from the research that I did was that her teacher may have encouraged her to read the Bible because Anandi was waiting for the other students to catch up with where she was, or as a compliment because she was such a bright student. But Anandi was was quite upset. She left the school and stomped home. And this was a big risk because there was no telling how Gopal might react, whether he would get angry or even abusive. But an interesting thing happened at this time. And he said to her, it doesn't harm us if we learn about other religions. Our goal is for you to get an education. And if that's the price to pay to get an education, then go for it. We, that's what we need to focus on, your education. And so she returned to school and that, that was the only time in her entire life until she came to the United States that she attended any kind of a formal school. You have this great uh, 
opening in uh, start of your third chapter in which you describe mm-hmm. uh, Theodosia Carpenter and mm-hmm. this almost chance encounter that ends up playing this pivotal role in Anandi's life. I was wondering if you could perhaps explain how it was that this woman living in uh, America it, on, on the East Coast in, uh, in New Jersey ends up discovering a, uh, about Anandi and Gopal and, and, and facilitates this really remarkable journey that Anandi takes. Yes. So I have to go back to Kolhapur where Gopal came to know Reverend Gohin. Now, Reverend Gohin had arrived in Kolhapur only about a year previously, and it was a mission that had been run up until that point by a senior missionary named Reverend Wilder. And Reverend Wilder had, in 1878, had returned to New Jersey, to Princeton, because of ill health. So Reverend Gohin naturally sent a letter to Reverend Wilder in Princeton, asking him to figure out a way to help Anandi get an education in the United States. So he asked Gopal to send him a letter, to write a letter introducing himself to Reverend Wilder. And then Reverend Gohin himself wrote a letter explaining his rationale to do this. And after giving it a lot of thought, Reverend Wilder decided that he couldn't really, he shouldn't really help Anandi come to the United States. So he wrote a letter explaining that more missionaries were on the way to India and she would get ample opportunities to continue her education right there in India. And then because he had come back to the United States and he was feeling somewhat purposeless, he had started a missionary newsletter. And he published these letters, the two from India and his response to them in his missionary newsletter. And gradually this missionary newsletter became quite widely distributed. So one evening, Theodosia Carpenter was visiting her dentist's office in Elizabeth, New Jersey, from Roselle, New Jersey. And while she was waiting, she looked at this newsletter that was lying on the table and she started flipping the pages. And there she came across these three letters and she was just amazed because she believed that this young couple should be helped. And she was also fascinated by the other articles in the newsletter which described missionary endeavors in other parts of the in other parts of the world not just in india and she thought that so she was very disappointed when she read reverend wilder's response uh, refusing to help anandi to come to the united states she when she was done with her dentist visit and she came home she couldn't forget about what she had read and so the next morning she made time to send a letter. Uh, she thought that it, even if it wouldn't, even if it might not necessarily help the young couple, at least it wouldn't hurt them. And all she wanted to do was offer encouragement and offer to help in whichever way she could from so far away. She didn't even know the name of the town in which they lived. But she sent the letter off 
And the irony is that between those letters arriving in the United States and Mrs. Carpenter sending her, her letter, two years had passed. And uh, the Joshi, no, I'm sorry, the Joshis had moved twice. But because he worked for the Postal Service, the letter kept getting forwarded until it found him. And that's how the correspondence between Anandi Joshi and Theodosia Carpenter began. I, I thought your description of the first letter was fascinating about how uh, Theodosia Carpenter writes, I'm sure you've been inundated with correspondence. <laughs> and, yes. and this yes. is the first letter they've ever received from... This uh, is the first, and in fact, the only letter that they received. But that just shows the depth of Theodosia's feeling for what they were trying to achieve and the depth of her commitment and her belief in the rightness of what they were trying to achieve. So this... How does this correspondence unfold, and how and what role does it play in terms of sh uh, shaping Anandi's views and her goals? Um, that's very interesting because what what the letters did was allow the two women to gradually reveal more of themselves to each other. But because it was such a private space, they could be more bold than they might otherwise have been. So for example, Anandi wrote in one of the letters about how she believed that women needed to be completely independent of men if they were to be totally free. She wrote about the plight of Hindu widows very fearlessly, which in person she, might, she may or may not have been able to articulate. She started observing her life and her society and her circumstances as a it what started out as a way to explain her world to Theodosia became a way for her to deeply think about her own society. So for example, even things like uh, Hindu religious festivals and their meaning, the plants and flowers that grew near where she lived, all of those things became subjects for her wonder. And she wrote about them in those letters. So those letters are what, and, and in the beginning of the correspondence, she's, it's a very unequal relationship because she thinks that, uh, she, she feels extremely grateful and almost under, uh, buried under the weight of Theodosia Carpenter's uh, favors to her. But over time, Theodosia puts her mind at ease. And she even says, if there is something that I can learn from your religion, I would love to learn from your religion. She even expresses an interest in being remotely converted to Hinduism. And as a result of this type of very wide-ranging and very deep dialogue, it became a much more, in some ways, a, an equal relationship, but also a much closer and thicker relationship. So in one of the letters to, to Theodosia Carpenter, Anandi made a very unusual request. She said, I would like to address you as my aunt. And she meant maternal aunt, because in Indian culture, the maternal aunt is almost like a godmother. 
it's the person who is expected to take care of a child if for some reason the child's mother is not available. And even though Anandi's mother was very much living at this time, she still wanted to look upon Theodosia Carpenter as her maternal aunt. And the most heartwarming thing to me is that not only did Theodosia agree to this, from that point forward, all their letters are addressed to each other as dear aunt and my dear niece. So they remained aunt and niece from that point forward until the very end. I want to also mention, uh, make clear that you described this very intimate correspondence between the two of them. And yet it was something also of a triangular correspondence because you describe how these letters, she that how Anandi would read these letters uh, out loud or she would read them with her husband. So he was, you know, very much a, uh, a, a, a not a, active participant, but he's definitely a, a reader and he's definitely an observer in this entire process. Yes, he was an observer of the entire process and to an extent, he was also participating in it. So in, I have only a couple of letters written by him to Theodosia's husband, but he did correspond with Theodosia's husband and express his views about religion with Benjamin Carpenter. So you have this correspondence, which is very intimate and which speaks to this enduring bond that these two women develop. But how does this lead to this very remarkable journey that Anandi undertakes? Because it's one thing to correspond with the person. It's another thing to travel literally halfway around the world to yes. live with them and to uh, for, for years. Yes. So once... Theodosia became her aunt, so to speak. She really did make a commitment to helping Anandi in whichever way possible. So, for example, I found it very touching when I came across a letter in which Anandi described the help that some American missionaries in Calcutta had given her. And Theodosia wrote back and said, if it's possible for me to return the favor to your benefactors in any way, please let me know. I'm paraphrasing something to this effect. So a favor done to Anandi was seen by Theodosia as a favor done to herself, and she was willing to return the favor. And so in one of the letters, she said, if you come to the United States, you can, of course, stay with me, and we will help you find a college to enroll in. And my belief after doing all this research is if there weren't a Theodosia Carpenter, I doubt that Anandi would have come to the United States because Reverend Wilder had essentially closed the door. That door was reopened because of Theodosia. And it was, I mean, it was opened a crack and then opened more and more by her commitment to Anandi and to her success. Now, before we get to talking about Anandi's life uh, in America, I was wondering if we could perhaps briefly explain what was it that led her to decide she wanted to pursue a career in medicine and why was it so important for her to come to the United States to pursue that career? That's a good question. So um, when she was 13 years old, she became pregnant and gave birth to a baby boy. 
but the she lost the baby within weeks of his birth and as might be expected she was overcome with grief and this time she had been learning letters and numbers and maybe some elementary reading for just a few years for maybe four or five years but somehow even that level of exposure to reading writing thinking had changed her bent of mind where other women of her time might have tried to overcome their grief by becoming more religious or practicing more rituals and fasts that's not where anandi's mind turned in her search for solace she decided that she had lost her baby because they didn't have access to medical care and the way to change the situation was to get more doctors in india because if male doctors could not treat women then it was imperative that there should be women doctors and she decided that she should become a doctor and she had the means to pursue such an ambitious education because her husband was so committed to her education and that's how she decided that she should become a doctor and until this point yes there was a it most of the energy for her education was from her husband she was a somewhat reluctant student but after this experience she became a wholehearted participant in this what might be considered a quixotic project for their time you emphasize the amount of sacrifice that's entailed for uh, gopal he has to save and though he has a good job he can only earn enough of it save enough for the moment to finance her voyage but you're also mm-hmm. describing the uh sacrifice in terms of putting uh anandi putting her entire life uh to uh you know behind her for the time being so she can undertake this journey i mean nowadays we we i mean travel today is not necessarily uh, a a simple thing but back then you're talking about uh, you you don't have say the you can't ch- simply check the vegetarian option on the menu no. and expect to get a vegetarian meal she she has to go to a place that is not only unfamiliar with her culture but is completely unprepared to accommodate it in any way whatsoever that's right and not only were they incapable of accommodating they were actively um resistant to accommodating so for example i found letters that anandi wrote from on board the ship when she sailed from calcutta to new york and her fellow passengers made fun of her for not for refusing to eat meat they could not understand the revulsion that she felt at the sights and the smells of the food and uh, the ship did not make any arrangements to provide her healthy adequate nutritious food so she was served half cooked rice rotten potatoes stalks of some other vegetables so it was a really really challenging process and i i th- i took that as a microcosm of this larger leap into the unknown that she was taking you described the preparations that she that she undertook she brought spices with her she had mm-hmm. she had to you know anticipate what sort of clothing she was going to need for a very different climate and how and, and I couldn't help but think as I read further into the book and we'll get to that in just a little bit but how those how it, in a sense it was that 
you know, dramatic sh- difference in terms of the lives that she led that contributed to uh, her uh, tragically early demise. Yes, because she was not used to the New England, I mean, uh, Northeastern United States weather, the cold weather. She had never seen snow. And so, first of all, she's in this extremely cold climate. Secondly, she has never lit a fireplace before. She has to learn to keep the fire lit all through the night. It's just overwhelming to me when I think about it because there's no electricity at this time. Mm -hmm. So the only way to keep warm is to keep the fire lit. And she didn't know how to do that. Um, her, Her attire was wearing saris. The sari is a garment that is optimized for the hot and humid Indian climate. And she had to somehow adapt it to so that it could give her adequate protection against the bitter Philadelphia and New Jersey cold weather. And then on top of that, of course, was the problem of food. Nobody here knew how to cook her food. And there are letters that I found very poignant because she's writing to Theodosia from Philadelphia. And she says, I'm so hungry. I have to make, I have to wait for the rice to cook, but I'm so hungry. So I'm sure that both on board the ship and later on during her time in the United States, then there were times when she literally suffered from starvation. And yet you can take those experiences and turn them around and read them a different way in terms of all that she was willing to suffer through in order to get that education or to in order to achieve that goal that she had set out for herself. Yes. And so strong was her commitment to becoming a doctor and returning to India that the quixotic husband that she had in one of his letters, when he was planning to join her in the United States, he toyed with the idea of not returning to India. And she, even though she was keen that he should join her in the United States, she wrote him a very strong letter back. And she said, if you don't want to go back to India, then it's better that you don't come to the United States at all. I know the plight of Indian women. I feel that I've been chosen to do something for Indian women. And I'm determined to go back after I complete my education. So she was very clear on what her life's purpose was. And she was not going to be distracted from that purpose by the difficulties that she was facing in the United States or even the difficulties that likely awaited her when she returned to India. Now, so often when people who know each other from afar meet up for the first time, they sometimes find that that relationship is much is not quite what they expected it to be. What was uh, – when Anandi reaches the United States, what is her relationship with Theodosia like? And uh, to what degree uh, is she able to settle into a life in the United States? Um, So Theodosia and her husband actually went to New York City to meet Anandi's ship when it docked in New York Harbor. And they both uh, picked her up and brought her back to their home in Roselle, New Jersey. Now, based on my research, it's clear that they were very fine and upstanding members of their community. One of the questions that I set out to answer is, um, what was the religious background of Theodosia Carpenter and her family? Did she have to face opposition 
for her willingness to help Anandi and to have her live with her in her home. Because we have to remember that this is the 1880s, not that far removed from the civil war. And Anandi was not a white person. She was not a Christian person. And in fact, she had vowed before leaving India that she would not convert to Christianity. So on this background, one might have expected that when she arrived in the United States, maybe Theodosia gets cold feet about having her live in her community, in her home, or that the community starts uh, responding in a hostile way to Anandi being in their community. But amazingly, none of these things happened. When they arrived in Roselle, neighbors of Theodosia Carpenter streamed in one after the other to welcome Anandi, bearing flowers and other gifts. And finally, it became late in the night and Theodosia decided that she should close the windows and turn off the light so that uh, they could have some rest. So it's really a very heartwarming story about how people welcomed Anandi and how Theodosia really uh, integrated her into the entire community. Now, you describe how Anandi comes to America for educational opportunities, which are greater than they are for her in India. And yet, mm -hmm. as you also explained, greater opportunities doesn't mean great number of opportunities. What were uh, Anandi's options and why did she ultimately choose to attend the Women's Medical College of Pennsylvania? Why, why was that the preferred option? Uh, because the Women's Medical College of Pennsylvania was founded by Quakers and it's in, it was in Philadelphia and it's now part of the Drexel University School of Medicine. Uh, it was a college that was specifically for women students and it was the most well-known of all the medical colleges for women in the United States. There were a couple of other colleges that she considered. One was in Boston. Uh, I believe that was a homeopathic college. And the other one was in New York City. But interestingly, her decision to go to Philadelphia was strengthened by the fact, her preference for Philadelphia was strengthened by the fact that the dean was very keen on having her attend her college. And the dean uh, appealed to the college administrators to make a scholarship available to Anandi. So the combination of financial support, the combination of a women's college that was welcoming to her, and the fact that it was the most well-known, well-established college made her decision very easy for her. You uh, elaborate upon this relationship with the dean in your book because it plays such a central role in Anandi's life during her time in uh, in medical school. I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about uh, Rachel Bodley and and why it was that, that she reached out to Anandi and and what was the nature of their relationship during Anandi's time in uh, getting an education? Sure. So Rachel Bodley was originally from Ohio and she was the dean of the women's college, not married, lived with her mother in a house across the street from the college. Now, uh, this goes back to the missionary impulse 
among Americans. So she had been a consistent donor to the missionary cause throughout her life. And whatever she knew about Indian women, she had created a feeling of sympathy for Indian women's plight in her heart. So when the idea of educating someone like Anandi presented itself, she was very keen that Anandi should attend her college. Now, this also relates to what the women's college saw as its mission. Its mission was not just about educating women doctors. It was about making a case for the education of women's doctors. And it was about making medical care, the reach of medical care as wide as possible for women and children in the United States because although not to the same extent as the plight of women and children in India, women and children in the United States suffered as well, especially the poor. And so the college saw its mission as far wider than simply educating the 30 or 40 students that they had each year. And Dean Bodley knew that having a student like Anandi would draw more positive attention to the college and to its mission. And so she was very keen that Anandi should attend her college. I like the point you make about the the novelty of Anandi's attendance. You mentioned, for example, that it wasn't the first time they've had students from abroad, but you mentioned that these were students who were the the, the daughters of, of English and American missionaries. This was the first time you have a truly foreign student coming in. And and uh, so in that sense, she really stood out. I mean, it's not like so many colleges and universities today where there's this, you know, this population of, of, of international yes. students. She really is very unique in that respect. That's right. She was very unique. Uh, like you mentioned, the uh, it's not that they hadn't had students from abroad, including from India. But they were, first of all, they were Christians. Secondly, they were white. And thirdly, and so in, in a sense, they were not as foreign. They already came with familiarity with the language. They, they, didn't, they didn't present challenges in terms of diet and attire. They had the same uh, familiar names. Whereas this person was totally different. And so she, Anandi, attracted a lot of media attention. And so Dean Bodley's idea was that the same attention would get drawn to her college as well. How, how well did Anandi do in her studies? And, and what were uh, some of the areas in which she particularly uh, focused in terms of her education? Uh, I don't really have a sense of how well she did in her studies. I haven't found any references to any kind of grading or ranking in the college at all. So I, I can't really comment on that. But in terms of her uh, educational interest, it was always relating to women and children. And so her medical thesis was actually a survey of uh, obstetric practices among Hindus at the time. And so that thesis today becomes a very rich source to understand what uh, the practices around obstetrics were like uh, uh, during the 1870s and 80s in India. You mentioned how uh, uh, Dean Bodley, you know, 
reached out to Anandi and brought her in because of the attention that she would draw. And it, it's the part of the, of, of the of your book that I found was a bit uncomfortable, which was the sense of how people sometimes viewed Anandi not as a person, but as a representative or almost, I hate to put it this way, but almost as an artifact. And I was thinking about that to a degree in terms of uh, Anandi's relationship with uh, Caroline Dahl. Mm-hmm. And I was wondering if you could elaborate a bit upon that relationship and, and, and because I, I also thought it was fascinating in terms of how Anandi was not just, you know, you know, living a life that was that was New Jersey and Philadelphia, but also that she traveled and, and, and saw some other places of the country as well. Yes. So Caroline Dolls is a very interesting case. Her husband was actually a missionary in India. And although I didn't find direct documentary evidence that Reverend Doll in India knew the Joshis, I have every reason to believe that they did know each other because the Joshis had made a name for themselves, especially within the American missionary community in Calcutta. But Caroline Dahl had heard of Anandi. And so she took a great deal of interest in getting to know her. And But the interesting thing is that she came at it with quite a bit of skepticism in her heart. So it's like, this woman, you know, she looked at her from a racial lens. She thought that she was a dumpy, stout, colored girl. And maybe at the back of her mind was the question of how well was this woman going to be able to uh, receive the education that she had come to receive. But it took only a few minutes of conversation for Doll to be completely won over by Joshi. And from that point forward, she became a fan. And at one point, she even invited Anandi to visit her in Washington, D.C., which Anandi did. And they even visited the White House. So Doll was a... And in fact, Caroline Doll is the person who wrote the first biography of Anandi back in 1888 the year after Anandi passed away. Now, you describe how Anandi is uh, vested in her education. She is studying very hard. She is living her life in the United States. But she's also maintained her connection with India, primarily through her correspondence with Gopal. And (laughs) you describe how the relationship is changing in ways that are – you know, that that are that, that reflect you know, the strains of the distance and, and and you know Gopal's personality. What's going on with them? And uh, when does Gopal finally make it to the United States? So Gopal came to the United States about two years after she did. So she was entirely by herself for two years, and that was a wonderful opportunity for her to come into her own without his influence or his interference and to forge a personality for herself among Americans. And he came two years later, but instead of traveling west through uh, the Suez Canal and through London, he traveled eastward. He traveled through Myanmar, which was then called Burma, through China, Singapore, Japan, finally to San Francisco, and then overland 
to uh, the East Coast. Um, so during this time, they, they carried on uh, correspondence all through this time. But uh, one of the interesting uh, letters that I came across was, so Anandi had to be worried when the prospect of him arriving in New Jersey became came close. And she wondered how she should greet him when they first met after two years. Because by this time, she had lived in the U.S. among Americans for two years, and she knew, for example, how they greet each other, how they give each other a hug when they meet after a long time, or how even a, 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 a husband plants a kiss on his wife's cheek or on his sister's cheek and so on. Now, kissing or embracing in public was quite unknown and quite frowned upon. I, I don't think it could even be frowned upon. It was just not done in the Indian context. And so Anandi was caught between these two very, very separate uh, cultural norms. If she were to expect her husband to kiss because that's what uh, Americans would expect, he might reject it. And if they were to greet each other very formally, then the Americans would look strangely at them. And so she wrote him a letter asking him how he would want her to greet him. And I thought that it was such a sad letter when I read it because she was the one who had the greater knowledge. She was the one who had the greater experience. If anything, he is the one he, who should have been consulting her and saying, so we are going to be living among, among Americans. Will you guide me on what the manners are, how things are done? But she did not have that power and that authority. And, and that's uh, is that really comes out that 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 unwillingness of Gopal to seek guidance when you describe his journey through the United States, because he's not just simply a passenger on a boat or on a train. But he becomes something of a of, of a notable figure himself. He you describe how he is giving speeches. He is uh, being written about in newspapers. He's being interviewed, and he's a person who definitely is not shy to give his opinion on things, whether that opinion is informed or, or even uh, consistent. Yes, that's right. And he did not worry about whether he was offending anyone. He, by the time, so the, the person who had encouraged his wife to read the Bible, if she, even if she had to, so that she could get educated, by the time he traveled through the Far East and arrived in the United States, he had become quite angry about the missionary presence in India, and he made no secret of it. And so the newspapers just loved having him to interview and to cover him and they just uh, paid more and more attention to him. So it was almost like a freak show. The more he outrageous he became, the more attention he got, and the more outrageous he became after that. So it, he was a very complex personality. Mm -hmm. That's one of the things that really stood out. You describe how uh, they, they finally uh, uh, met up again in when when he finally uh, got to where she was living. And you, desc you describe how they're very tense, and yet you also – 
you know, note in this part of uh, of her life, he's still there for her. I mean, they they they're they're still married, they're still together when she passes away, and she, and he's there for all of the tensions between them as she is not only you know accomplishes this goal and and sets out to start on this new period of her life, but as she begins this physical deterioration, she's overcome as she as this long illness that she's suffering from gradually takes her life. Yes. Um, it's almost as if when push came to shove, he set aside all his anger and all his acrimony and all his insecurities about a, having a successful wife and really dedicated himself to helping her in whichever way he could. The One of the most poignant scenes in the book is a letter that he wrote describing his life on board the ship when they sailed back from New York to Bombay. They couldn't afford for both of them to have a first-class cabin. So he basically had to stay and sleep on the open deck where it was extremely cold. The ship uh, moved a lot and uh, he was not he was served last. He was not served sufficient food. And he he managed to put up with all that and provide care for his wife. For example, she had become so weak that she couldn't even comb her long hair. And he had to comb her hair for her. So he really did everything in his power. Once it was clear that she couldn't take care of herself and they were headed home. I think it was tragic in, in another sense as well, in, in that she receives her degree and you describe how the the effort that, that is made by her and by others to pave the way for her to start this process of becoming this doctor who can, who could treat women. Uh, they make, they, they clear the way uh, in India, they uh, attain all sorts of, of support in order to achieve this goal. And then she gets there, and by that point, her health is so weak that she passes away. It's it's tragic to think about how what you know all that might have been accomplished, all that she had already achieved, and then just when she's on the cusp of you know making that that broader change, she, she's mm-hmm. gone. Yes, that was that's the really tragic part of this story. Um, but overall, my sense is that. The opposition that had that was so strongly arrayed against her literally melted overnight when she returned and they saw how much she had suffered. The Indians saw how much she had suffered and the courage with which she had achieved her goal. And so where they might have in, been inclined to shun her from the religion because she had lived among non-Hindus and crossed the seas and committed all those sins, they actually accepted her as one of their own. And as I have shown in the book, over the following, even over the following years, uh, people became a lot more willing to consider educating women. It was almost like she was the person who first breached that dam. Mm -hmm. Well, we've taken up a lot of your time, but before we go, could you tell us what you're working on now? 
Actually, I'm between projects right now. I haven't <laughs> decided what comes next. This went on for 10 years. I need to take a break. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I, I think that every you know day of those 10 years is reflected in this book, which is, which is really a, an excellent moving read. Thank you so much. I'm glad you liked it. Well, uh, Nandini, thank you very much for taking some time out of your schedule to speak with us. I hope you have a wonderful day. Thank you. You're welcome. I'm glad you were able to talk to me about my book. <laughs>